0: Our first reading this morning is from the book of Acts, chapter 16, and we read from verses 11 to 24. We set sail from Troas and took a straight course to Samothrace the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city for some days. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate by the river, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had gathered there. A certain woman named Lydia, a worshipper of God, was listening to us. She was from the city of Thyatira and a dealer in purple cloth. The Lord opened her heart to listen eagerly to what was said by Paul. When she and her household were baptized, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come and stay at my home. And she prevailed upon us. One day, As we were going to the place of prayer, I can't talk this morning, place of prayer, we met a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners a great deal of money by fortune telling. While she followed Paul and us, she would cry out, these men are slaves of the most high God who proclaim to you a way of salvation She kept doing this for many days, but Paul, very much annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I order you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. When they had brought them before the magistrates, they said, these men are disturbing our city. They are Jews and are advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to adopt or observe. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates had them stripped of their clothing and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they'd given them a severe flogging, they threw them into prison and ordered the jailer to keep them securely. Following these instructions, he put them in the innermost cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. We continue the story from Acts Chapter 16 verse 25 About midnight Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them Suddenly there was an earthquake so violent that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened When the jailer woke up and saw the prison doors wide open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, since he supposed that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted in a loud voice. Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. The jailer called for lights and rushing in, he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them outside and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They answered, Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. At the same hour of the night, he took them and washed their wounds. Then he and his entire family were baptised without delay. He brought them up into the house and set food before them. And he and his entire household rejoiced that he had become a believer in God. When morning came, the magistrate sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported the message to Paul saying. The Magistrate sent word to let you go, therefore come out now and go in peace. But Paul replied, they have beaten us in public, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And now they're going to discharge us in secret? Certainly not. Let them come and take us out themselves. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. After they took them out and asked them to leave the city. After leaving the prison, they went to Lydia's home, and when they had seen and encouraged the brothers and sisters there, they departed.
1: I had a conversation uh, just last week with someone who I got talking to in the street, as you do sometimes when you're standing waiting for someone. Anyway, after a few pleasantries, this person asked me what I did for a living. And I found myself faced with that dreadful dilemma faced by clergy and I'm guessing medical doctors um, of what to say next. If I admit to being a Baptist minister, I can take a good guess at what conversation will ensue as I either find myself uh, fielding the other person's prejudices and presuppositions about religion or getting drawn into an unofficial pastoral encounter as they offload their deepest spiritual burdens on my day off. Anyway, uh, a few years ago, Liz and I were on holiday and we found ourselves uh, going to a local pub for an evening meal. And as I was at the bar ordering the food, the same thing happened and I got talking to a man whose self-appointed job for the evening seems to be propping up the bar and having a definitive opinion on the best selection of local ales, Uh, and of course making conversation with all comers. He fairly soon worked out that I wasn't from around these parts, as he put it, and eventually he also asked me straight what I did for a living. Well, what do you say? To deflect or disclose? On that occasion I found myself wondering where my new friend might go with it, so I told him I'm a Baptist minister of a church in London. Oh, he said, the church. He continued, the thing about the church, and I'm not trying to start a fight, but the thing about the church is all that money. I mean, taking money from gullible people and then buying palaces and all that and always wanting more when they already own more land than British Rail. It's all about the money, isn't it? Well, what do you think? Well, anyway, I wished him well and uh, said I really ought to be getting back to my table before the food arrived and thanked him for his advice on the beer. But is he right? Is church really all about the money? I'd like to say no, but then here I am preaching a sermon on money. So maybe he has a point. Well, bear with me for a few minutes. We'll see where our engagement with this morning's story from the book of Acts about Lydia and Paul and Silas and this slave girl who doesn't get a name, we'll see where that takes us. Broadly speaking, I think there are two errors that churches can make when addressing the topic of money. The first is to assume that money is an evil. We misquote Paul and give the impression that money is the root of all evil when, of course, actually what Paul says in his letter to Timothy, uh, if it was Paul, is that the love of money is the root of all evil. It is the idolizing of money, the prioritizing of money above all else that opens the door to works of darkness. As we explored a few weeks ago in my sermon on power, money like power can be a cause of great good in the world, but all too often the church has sought not to help people live well with money, but to convince them that money is an evil best avoided. And of course, it's only one small step from there to theologies of asceticism, which suggest that the only way to be rid of this evil is to give it all away, preferably to the church. Well, the other error which occurs at the other end of the scale, but ends up intriguingly in the same place, is to assume that money is a deserved gift from God, given as a reward for faithfulness. And it's only one small step from there to theologies of blessing, wealth and prosperity, where you know the more faithfully one gives to the church, then the more God will give one back. Both of these are, I think, false views of money, but they are prevalent and I've certainly met both in various forms in the church over the years. Well, I want to suggest that our passage for this morning goes a long way towards identifying and debunking both these positions. And it does so through the engagements that Paul and Silas have with two very different women. Firstly, there's Lydia, She gets a name because she is a woman of status. She is a dealer in purple cloth and she's clearly a successful merchant, plying her trade in Philippi, the capital town of the region and also a Roman colony. Lydia is doing well in life. The locally produced purple dye uh, was made intriguingly from sea snails that were prevalent in that area and the cloth that the grinding up of their shells allowed to be dyed purple was greatly prized for elite buyers even these days don't we we think purple cloth is a sign of status you know if we, if we have a visiting bishop in the house they will be wearing a purple shirt and that is from this ancient idea that purple cloth denoted high status so if you controlled the sale of purple cloth there was money to be made there so she would have had regular encounters with the rich and the powerful she would have had friends or at least business contacts in high places lydia was also what was known as a god fearer this is a gentile who worshipped the jewish god and so when she converts Or comes to the conviction that Jesus is the long-awaited Jewish Messiah, which is probably a better way of thinking about it than converting, she becomes the first convert to Christianity in Europe. She's a wonderful woman and the significance of this is often overlooked. I'll say it again, the first European Christian convert of Paul was a financially successful woman. In a world of patriarchy, where women were themselves often treated more as property than persons, and in a new religion, which we often think of as a religion of the poor and the disadvantaged, this is highly significant. Paul and Silas extend to Lydia, this successful woman trader the inclusive message of Jesus in whom, as Paul says elsewhere, the barriers of gender, social class and ethnicity are broken down. She and her family were baptized in the name of Jesus. And although this isn't a sermon on baptism, I would just observe that baptism has from the very beginning been the way of marking a person's belonging to and commitment to Christ. And as I said last week, I'll say again today, if you are at that stage in your journey and would like to explore baptism here at Bloomsbury, please speak either with myself or Dawn uh, after the service about this, and we'll talk with you more about that. But back to Lydia, who having become a follower of Jesus, then opened her home to Paul and Silas. She extended her financial support and her hospitality to them in support of their mission to the city of Philippi. And like other women in the book of Acts, such as Mary in chapter 12 and Priscilla in chapter 18, she becomes a patron of these two missionaries. And I just want to suggest that here in Lydia, we have a positive example and role model of how a person with money might faithfully live within the community of Christ's people. These values of hospitality and generosity that she demonstrates still speak to those of us who are similarly able to live out such values today. But the heartwarming and encouraging story of Lydia sandwiches a much darker episode in Paul and Silas's ministry in Philippi. It's a story of demon possession, of torture, of false imprisonment and international politics. And it all begins with another woman. At first glance, the slave girl is the polar opposite of Lydia. She is property and is constrained to use her religious gift to make money for her owners. But there are similarities, too. Both the slave girl and Lydia are women trying to survive in the midst of a system that constantly sought to constrain and control them. And both were caught up in financial systems that extended far beyond their own control or influence. Lydia may have been wealthy, generous and hospitable, but as a merchant of a Roman colony, she was also compromised by the mechanisms of trade. And similarly, the slave girl is required to behave in certain ways by the profit motives of her owners. She has very little agency for resistance, which is why what happens when this slave girl meets Paul and Silas is so unusual. She starts following them around, shouting to anyone who will listen that they're slaves of the Most High God and that they are proclaiming a way of salvation. Well, they say that any publicity is good publicity, but Paul saw through the mockery of her words, superficially truthful, though they may have been to the spirit of control that lay behind them. And so he ordered this spirit to leave her. The girl herself disappears from the narrative at this point, with her usefulness to her owners gone, and we are left wondering about her fate. But what happens next to Paul and Silas is a racially motivated beating, public humiliation and imprisonment. The owners of the slave girl whip up the crowd into an anti-Semitic fury by using the age old technique of scapegoating the ethnic minority for the sins of wider society. And here in Acts, it's Paul and Silas as Jews who get the blame for the city's financial and social woes. You could write that onto European antisemitism of the last thousand years, couldn't you? And of course, in other times and in other places, this same technique of racial stereotyping and scapegoating has led to deep and violent divisions within societies as Fear and anger earth themselves on the disadvantaged ethnic minority. From Damilola Taylor here in London, 20 something years ago, goodness me, to George Floyd in Minnesota more recently, and so many other stories. Violence against the minority ethnic community in society remains an ever present risk. Particularly when money, wealth and poverty are in that mix and where you have an oppressed, scapegoated, impoverished and disadvantaged minority, the spiraling of violence against them can seem at times almost inevitable. I've always enjoyed listening to the songs of Paul Simon Uh, Liz and I went to hear him perform uh, at the O2 a few years ago with with Sting. Um, One of his more recent albums, he has a great song, Wristband, which captures something of this ethnic violence and tension. Uh, I don't know if you know it, it's a great song. He talks of uh, performing a concert and stepping outside the stage door uh, at one of his concerts uh, to check his phone and have a cigarette. Uh, But he, he lets the stage door slam behind him so he can't get back in so he has to go round to the front door where the punters are entering Uh, and the problem he discovers is that the bouncer on the door doesn't recognize him and won't let him in to his own concert because he doesn't have the right wristband so Paul Simon says I can't explain it I don't know why my heart beats like a fist when I meet some dude with an attitude saying hey you can't do that or this anyway he tries to talk his way in and we're left hanging as to whether he ever makes it back on the stage. But then the song does one of those typical Paul Simon turns, And it's the uh, the final verse that I think is particularly relevant to us this morning. He sings the riots started slowly with the homeless and the lowly. They spread into the heartland towns that never get a wristband. Kids that can't afford the cool brand, whose anger is a shorthand. you'll never get a wristband and if you don't have a wristband then you can't get through the door. You get his point. So here we have, back to the first century, Paul and Silas, representatives of a minority ethnic community, Jewish, subject to a racially motivated attack, all triggered by Paul's action in releasing the slave girl from the spirit that controlled her and bound her. Releasing her from the systems that oppressed her. There can be a very real cost to pay if stands are taken against the principalities and powers that dominate so much of human society and interaction. And always somewhere in the middle of it, you will find economics Because money is power and power is control. This is the dark side of money, where it enslaves rich and poor alike, where it mediates oppression and instigates violence. Can we ever free ourselves from these spirals in society that suck in the wealthy to legitimate the violence against the disempowered? Paul and Silas place themselves in opposition to those systems of economic control. And Paul casts the demon out of the slave girl. The remarkable thing about this story, however, is that it doesn't end with the violence. Rather, it ends with liberation and not just for Paul and Silas, but for all those who were imprisoned that night. The earthquake shakes the foundations of the prison and all the doors are opened and as we sang last week in our closing hymn, everyone's chains fell off. It even ends well for the jailer, whose attempted suicide ends in the experience of new life for him and his household. And as the darkness of that night gave way to a new dawn, The magistrates learned that Paul and Silas were not just Jews, but also Roman citizens. And so they were released back to Lydia. And so the story comes full circle as Lydia welcomes them into her spare room in her house. So what does this complex and violent story have to say to us as we consider our own use and handling of money and power? as we seek to engage the mission of Christ in our city, in our culture, in our society. Well, firstly, I think it calls us to works of hospitality and generosity. Like Lydia, we need to learn to hold lightly to our own wealth, such as we have it, and to give generously and sacrificially in support of the ministry of the gospel, both here in London and around the world. If we believe, for example, that as a church, it is our calling before God to have a building as a place of worship, hospitality and welcome, then we also have a responsibility to pay for it. If we believe that it's right for us to have ministers who serve the people of God through this place and into the wider world, then it is right too that we should pay for them. And this afternoon after lunch, those of us who are church members We'll be gathering in this space again for one of our quarterly church meetings, where we will prayerfully discern together the mind of Christ for our congregation. Something which always includes decisions on how we will collectively use the money that has been entrusted to us. These are not always easy discussions, you understand because our discussions around finance reveal much about who we are as God's people and central to all this is the money given to God through this church by those who are part of the community here. And so we come really to the crux of what I want to say this morning. I have long held that giving is not a practical issue. It's a spiritual issue. Giving is not a practical issue. It is a spiritual issue. What we do with our money is not really a decision about what we do with our money. It stems from who we know ourselves to be before God. Many of us here in this room are already giving sacrificially and faithfully to this church. Many of us have responded particularly generously and faithfully to the financial challenges faced by this church over the last couple of years. And if you have been part of that story, then on behalf of the whole church, can I say thank you? God sees your faithfulness and generosity. However, the challenge remains for each of us, I believe, to regularly review our giving. Not as support to this church as an institution, but as a tangible expression of our faithful discipleship exercised through generosity to others. And my question for us this morning is simply this. Are you in the right place with your giving? I don't preach the Old Testament practice of tithing as an absolute that is binding on Christians. Firstly, because we don't live in a context where our faith communities are supported by state taxation and I don't think that we should. But secondly, the reason I don't preach tithing as an absolute is because for some of us giving 10% is frankly not enough, while for others it is clearly too much. For some people, to give 10% out of their poverty to support the church is to exacerbate their poverty and if that is your situation come and talk to me because we have a hardship fund and we might be able to give you money to help you. But if you have good money maybe 10% is not enough. However, it is often a good place to start and just sharing personally. Liz's and my practice over the years has been to give 10% of our own disposable income to the church as an expression of our commitment to God and our commitment to the congregation where we're in membership. And then our charitable giving given elsewhere is additional to this. That's just sharing my own practice for you. Sometimes, if I'm honest, I have not always agreed then with what my church has decided to do with the money that I have given to it, but That's not the point. I don't give to my church to support a cause that I always agree with. Rather, I give to God through my community of faith. And I do so as a spiritual discipline in gratitude to God. And this is the crux of it. I've said it before and I will say it again. Giving is a spiritual discipline. We don't give because the church needs it. Rather, we give if we can, because it intentionally introduces into our relationship with money, our relationship with God. It intentionally introduces who we are before God, in relation to God, into who we are in relation to our money. Giving is a spiritual discipline. The church is not just another charity that needs our support, nor is is it a club with a discretionary membership fee. Rather, it is the accountable community through which we give to God in response to God's gracious gifts to us. And of course, I must recognize here that not all our giving is financial. We give resources of time and effort too. And not everyone is in a position where their contribution to church life can include the giving of money. But for many of us, money is where the rubber hits the road. And so my challenge this morning for each of us is for us according to our means, To review our giving is it time for you to increase your giving is it time for you to decrease your giving i'll just put that out there circumstances do change is it time to set up that standing order and fill out the gift aid form to ensure that our giving to god is a monthly priority Another principle of giving is that we should give as we receive. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians. And the old practice of passing round the weekly collection plate emerged at a time and in a context where people were paid weekly and in cash. One of the great stories of the founder and builder of this church, Sir Samuel Morton Pito, was that when he was building his railways and employing the navvies, who were mostly Irish labourers who'd been building the canals and then got into building the railways, he broke with established practice in the way he employed people. The practice of other railway builders was to pay people in vouchers, which they then had to spend in the company shop, and that used employment to keep people in effect in economic slavery. Sir Samuel, said that he believed employment should be about liberating people and so he paid people weekly not in arrears and he paid them in cash not in vouchers. So people were liberated through their employment. And so this church and so many others like it that emerged in that period, which had people in it who were paid weekly in cash, passed around a plate so people could get their money on a Friday, pop their giving for Sunday behind the mantelpiece, drop it into the church collection plate on a Sunday morning. I think the last time I was paid weekly in cash, I was 15 and doing a paper round. Since then, I've been paid monthly by standing order. And I'm guessing for most of us, whether it is your pension or your uh, other forms of income, maybe you too, like me, are paid monthly by bank transfer. And if that is the case, then a monthly standing order, I believe, becomes the most appropriate way of ensuring that our giving to God is a priority in our lives. This is why we no longer pass the collection plate around each week, but rather as Duncan led us in a prayer so beautifully earlier, we dedicate our giving to God as part of our worship, recognizing that giving in whatever way it has been given. Well, look, our time is almost up. Is my friend from that pub right? Is the church all about the money? Well, I'd still say no it isn't, it's about mission and discipleship and love and hospitality and generosity and service and so much more. But how we handle our money together affects what we can and cannot do together. This is why church meetings matter, where we have to take those decisions around budgets and things. And so can we learn the lesson of Lydia, of what it means to be good with money? And can we learn the lesson of Paul and Silas, becoming fearless in challenging those systems of financial oppression and exploitation that exist in our world. As we model something different in our own lives and in our own community. As I keep saying, this isn't really about money. It's about discipleship and spirituality. This is the call on us all. And I think it is our challenge then to respond.
2: Thank you, Simon, for that thoughtful sermon and issuing that challenge. We'll have a few moments of reflection and then I'll call the panel together. Thanks. Could I invite um, Solomon and Philip uh, to join the panel? Um, So, I mean, there was a lot there. There was the reflections on the female characters in the scripture reading just thinking about giving. Dawn, where are you going with the uh, things that we've been hearing about?
3: I can't lip read Fifi, I'm sorry. Yeah. In the and Solomon, because yeah. they, they can't see us online. It's okay. Thanks. Oh, yeah. What was the question?
2: <laughs> uh, female characters. Um, Slavery, yeah, um, I mean, th- th- racial oppression. Giving, which, which, what, what struck you?
3: I mean, I'm always struck by the female characters that are named and the choices behind the ones that are and the ones that aren't. And I, I'm one of those people who sits there and I want to know what happens to that poor slave girl. Um, I mean, I'm, I doubt. Well, obviously, we're not going to find out, but. So I, I reflect, I, it's one of those, money's one of those things that's so difficult to talk about, isn't it? It's such a taboo in society, yet it feels like absolutely everything revolves around it, around needing to buy the next thing. Like talking about advertising the other week when you're up here and the things that get advertised and, and it's all that materialism and pushing and it's all connected to money and the idea that having more releases you but people still seem like they're bound up by it yet it is definitely something when you don't have it it imprisons you and then bringing your faith into that bringing your generosity of spirit your conviction of what you think God is calling you to give it's a it's a big one it's a messy one I don't know that I have necessarily any thoughts of clarity, my giving has gone up and down over the years is I will be honest, my giving right now is very low. Because having two small children and not much within the benefit system to support you when you're only working part time, it's, it's hard. That's a that's just a reality. It will will change and it will shift. But for others, they're trapped there. And it isn't, it's not a phase that they're going through. Yeah, it's a It's a difficult one. I'm like, I don't, I don't really have any clarity of thought on this one. It's just constant wrestling. And I think I I would echo Simon's thing of like, it's a good thing to continually reflect on your giving and what that looks like. And it's not just about the money, it's about everything. What are we offering as our life towards God, not the church, as it were.
2: Thank you for your frankness. Philip.
4: Oh, where to start? It's almost impossible subject, I think, and um, I think Simon has done so well in trying to extrapolate so much, so many different points from it. Um, I was thinking, I mean, being brought up in a small town in Wales, there were two Baptist churches and I went to, I was brought up in the one that was the more evangelical of the two and was rather suspicious of, you know, the more holistic approach of helping the people, a lot of money um, going out to consciously to the homeless by things like sales of work and bazaars and the winter fair. They really did not approve of these very much. And I was always a bit suspicious. I wasn't sure why, because obviously Jesus said, what you do to those you do to me in terms of love and support. And I had this mentality, I think, for quite some time. And until <clears throat> I started teaching in London at the very beginning, in the 70s, um, I was for a while an organist at an Anglican church just behind the Royal London Hospital. The church is now the library of that hospital. And um, I was given a basement flat there, which is very nice. The church called me the Baptist in the basement. <laughs> And um, it, it was quite, uh, quite a thing. Now they, I, I'd only been there about two or three weeks when suddenly, oh, the, there was this Christmas uh, winter fair. And I went out, the vicar said, would I help with a storm? Well, yes, of course. And I spoke to, I couldn't believe it. Um, the, the queue of this, um, for this winter fair, was at least 150 people all around the church, the next street, all the way around. And I spoke to one old lady who was in her late 80s and she said, oh, hello, love. um, I've got hardly any money at all, but I come here every year. I buy all my Christmas presents in one go and I love this church and I'll be here on Christmas Day. And I thought, well, very, very nice. And there was a feeling that the church was doing something good. And I started to change my whole approach to it all. A few weeks or maybe a month or two after that, I went to another church um, in the area um, which had a rather different view of things. And by co- complete coincidence, the vicar actually said, um, <clears throat> one, I'm very proud in this church that we don't rely on things like Christmas fairs and bazaars and that sort of thing. And I was thinking what conclusion is he coming to and he said because it gives the impression that God can't work without our old socks God can't work without our old socks and I thought that was extraordinary and I thought then well I'm sure there were quite a few people in that queue at the other church that would have probably Been delighted with probably several pairs of old socks and I think that's changed my view a lot on the mission of the church, the serving church and everything else coming together.
2: Uh, Thank you Philip yeah I mentioned actually that I'd been to the 200th anniversary party of St Pancras new church uh, yesterday and the, the vicar there Anne has a very specific prayer She wants God to give three million pounds through the National Lottery Fund so that they can build toilets underneath their car park. Uh, Now, I mean, three million pounds is quite a lot of money, but to build toilets under a listed building like that, you know, it's very, very, very big project. And actually they've only got one dilapidated old toilet in the whole building, and they can't really do any kind of renting of the accommodation for anything without that being... um, you know, done up. And they've just got a tiny congregation, smaller than us, in this huge, beautiful building. So I can understand their dilemmas, but to take it from the National Lottery Fund, I think creates another set of questions, doesn't it? Um, Solomon, lovely to see you. Thank what were you. your thoughts on what Simon was saying?
5: Yes, I think it's, for me, it's, it's, um, it's a reminder, a uh, strong reminder how we form society on the basis of power, influence and money, and then once you are outside of that and you know society tends to stigmatize you or create identity for you and that happened with the experience of poor and Silas. how it was strongly raised that oh they are Jews you know I think that was powerful for me and <coughs> It could also be like, okay, he is, for example, um, an African or he's European or he's an Asian. So what? You know, and that was, that was strong for me. And another thing is the, um, how the good of Paul and Silas reflected to the authority, even during the time of the release, he wanted to show the authority the good, that little good from the church, from his perspective, perspective, to the Magistrate, and demonstrated to say, well, look, let the Magistrate know what's happening. And that is exactly
2: speaking to authority. So that's interesting. So the thing that you picked up on particularly was Paul's, even though he was locked up in the chains, he said, I'm not going to walk out here without making, and that that provoked, that provoked an apology. Yes, that provoked an apology, yes. So did you see a a parallel with scapegoating in contemporary society? Yes, because obviously, um, Could you move a little bit closer to the microphone?
5: Obviously because the fact that they were identified based on the background mm, that contributed to the imprisonment. So um, to teach or to demonstrate to the authorities that, well, we are, you know, people of God and we will show our good to you. And I was powerful. And then I was speaking truth to authority for what they did, especially, you know, provoking a sense of apology
2: from the Magistrate. Dawn, did you have any other further reflection on that? Well,
3: I just prompted my thought about the evening that's coming up on May the 25th after the flood. And that record, like that reflection on the impact of Christianity on the transatlantic slave trade and racism and then also the move for abolition and for apologies, but then also reflection on reparations as well. And just really, I've never thought like that. I've struck by that, that like Paul's I like, know this is injustice. And this is injustice that needs to be recognized and needs to be atoned for. And that's powerful. That's really powerful. So just a little plug there to encourage you to go put it in your diary on May the 25th at 6 p.m. Possibly, it's on the website, it's on the news and views and all that. Um, but there's a real challenge in that. And there's also a real challenge in that for those of us that don't live in those spaces of marginalization because of our, our race or our ethnicity. And, and recognizing the, again, that privilege that we hold and where are the spaces that we need to make that move towards justice, that move towards reparation and uh, again coming back to not necessarily just money but a recognition that things need to be there is a there's something there isn't there there's it's not just about saying sorry it's it's more than that thank you
2: i won't keep the discussion going too long now because i'm sure we'll return to the theme of giving uh during our, our conversations with each other during the church meeting this afternoon Thank you very much to our panelists for taking part today. That's terrific. Let us pray.
4: Great Creator God and Lord of life, we rejoice that in the season of Easter still, we may celebrate your pledge of both new birth and sustaining love. A love so deep, it passes all comprehension. Grant us the humility to understand and experience the depths of that love, even in those trying situations that perplex, confuse or overwhelm us. And during those searching times of spiritual loneliness and isolation, teach us to hold onto that ever outstretched hand. It is Easter still and walking in the light of the cross, Help us to rejoice in that communion of fellowship and love. Great Lord of nature, shaping and renewing, be pleased to hear these our prayers. A prayer for the world, for an aching, bruised and diseased world, where pain, suffering and despair are so often the sad currency that we witness daily through the media. We can but think of regions of particular concern, such as the Ukraine and Yemen. But wherever violence, strife, and bloodshed are known to us, we plead for resolution and healing, and that we may never become spiritually immune to the horror of killing. Lord, you have given yourself for our healing and for a hurting, suffering world, hear our prayer. Again, for the healing of the nations, Lord, we pray, come Prince of Peace and Reign. And at this time, let us think too of those still struggling with the effects of COVID, many of these long term. For those struggling with dementia, and similar mental issues, for the sick in body. We also remember the doctors, nurses, and care workers of every description, providing a calendar of care 24 hours a day. We think also of those who carry an unspeakable sorrow. For those facing financial hardship at this time, And for those experiencing redundancy and unemployment, and for the excluded on our streets who have nowhere to lay their heads, Lord of compassion and healing, hear our prayer. Pilgrim God, Redeemer of the earth, we confess our failure to share the fruits of creation more equitably. We remember before you places too numerous to mention, where hunger and poverty have become the staple diet of daily existence. Forgive us, O God, for thinking of ourselves more than others and for consuming too much too readily. Great Lord of nature, shaping and renewing, be pleased to hear our prayer. And finally, a verse of hope and reassurance from a contemporary hymn. Come, trust in Christ and live in peace. Anticipate that final light when strife and bigotry shall cease and faith be lost in praise and sight. Lord, in your mercy, hear these our prayers. Amen.
2: Thank you very much, Philip, for those thoughtful and inspiring prayers. I mean as I as I was thinking about our theme of money and economics this week, I've been struck at how serious the global situation is. That contraction of one and a half percent nearly in the US economy that was announced. Last week means that the U.S is facing the very high possibility of a recession later on this year. European Union's facing a recession. Um, we've got a cost of living crisis here with soaring inflation, which is going to go up again in September. The central banks are struggling. We saw the Bank of England and the um, U.S Federal Reserve raise interest rates this week. There was an interesting article in the Financial Times. They interviewed one of the policymakers in America. And he said, it's going to take an awful lot of prayer to sort this out. And so that was the sort of headline on the on the piece in the markets report in the Financial Times, "It's going to take a lot of prayer. And of course, the way in which they were using that was it's a desperate situation. There's nothing that anybody could do. It's going to take a lucky, you know, um, miracle to come in from above. But actually, I thought, well perhaps this is going to take an awful lot of prayer, but how we interpret prayer, how we use prayer, and how we think God might respond to prayer in an economic situation is probably a little bit different to the way the headline writer was approaching that uh, report on the, um, the, the interview with the Federal Reserve member. To finish, a blessing. May God, whose resources are infinite, guide our approach to money. May Christ, who shunned material wealth, enable us to prosper and may the spirit for whom status and money are immaterial shape our values